Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. It's very nice to see you. I suppose the first question is, but Dire Straits sort of um, dissolved in around 1995. So why why did you not write the book earlier? I wasn't asked to. Uh Oh, right. So somebody asked you. It wasn't a question of you just chomping at the bit and thinking, I've got to tell this story. No, it it never really came up in conversation. I I just found myself sitting next to uh, a very nice lady from Peter Fraser Dunlop, uh, at some charity event in my local hometown down in, uh, in in the New Forest. And she turned to me during supper and she said, um, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, this is a very strange question. Why do you ask? And she said, well, I saw one of your shows recently uh, where I talk about the history of the band and play some of the old songs in a chronological sort of form. And she said, I found it very interesting. I think you could you could write a good story about that. I think people would find it fascinating. And I said, oh, God, I can't be bothered to do that. And she said, well, if you think, think about it, and if you, if you like the idea, then come and see me. So anyway, I got another phone call from her saying, you're going to come and see me or not. And eventually I ended up at the offices and talking to her, and one thing led to another, and here we are. Well, this book starts in, I think your brother was in Market Harbour. I did, in Leicestershire, yeah. Give us some idea of... of um, well, we might even ask for the old traditional question, Dave. The record-playing equipment. Yeah, can you remember what record-playing equipment there was in your home? We're trying uh, to find out whether it was a posh radiogram or a tiny Dan set or whatever. Uh, at that particular point in time, at the age of 13, I didn't have a record player at all. Mm-hmm. And that sounds kind of strange. We were listening to Radio Luxembourg on a crystal radio set. Uh, at night time, when my brother and I were supposed to be asleep, Will and I would tune into Radio Luxembourg uh, because people were talking about it at school. You got to tune into. It. So he, my brother, he built. A, he built. As you he mentioned had, in the book, he built a, re- a crystal. Yes, set, he built he? this crystal radio set. Yeah, we, and we had these old-fashioned headphones that my dad used in the wall. Oh, really? You know. So we listened. We each had one, you know, ear each. So we were listening, and sort of Elvis was coming down the. The, the the signal and Chuck Berry and all this and I thought what is this what is this this is kind of exciting maybe feel something 
And I suppose being in a, uh, a sort of middle-class Victorian background in Leicestershire, it was, if you like, devoid of a little bit of emotional content, to put it kindly. And this music was a sort of language that I didn't really understand, but it, but it touched me very deeply and, and still does. So, you know, that, what's, that's what turned me on to, to getting involved in music at all. And so I, you know, eventually saved up some money to buy a guitar and struggled with it for endless hours trying to make some decent sounds out of it. So you didn't have mates who played or anything at that stage. You were pretty much doing it on your own. Well, I, 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 it turned out that this was happening to a few other people around me. So we eventually ended up in the, in one of the rooms in my house, much to my parents' despair, where there's thrashing around and making the most filthy noise on these cheap guitars. And we built all our own equipment. We built speaker cabinets and we bought these little horrible little amplifiers from somewhere. And, with plugged them all in and you know fused the house and all the rest of it and I think so at some point uh, somebody used a radio set to manage to get a plug into a radio set so you could get some sound out of it it was desperate times and um, it probably sounded absolutely dreadful but we were having a ball just right. trying to copy what was coming down the airwaves and who did you you, you talk very uh, very excitedly about two records that really change your life well I think one was I can't explain by the who yeah and the other was uh, was the kinks it's uh, you really got me so well, yeah. what was it about those two that, that were so uh, explosive and exciting well I'm not sure I have to explain that if anybody's, anybody's ever heard them I mean you hear that I mean would it be great to write that you know <laughs> even now and they were just classic two and a half minute moments of joy to me it was like oh my god and when I got to see The Who when I was I don't know 16 or something I mean boy that was a moment did you ever go through the stage of uh, a pretended to be a musician by you know posing with a tennis racket in front of a dressing room a, dre a dressing table mirror or anything like that well before you go on stage that's what you always do oh, right. like you find a mirror and check it and <laughs> I'm joking <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's a little bit about that, a little bit of that. You know. Right, right. But there's a bit of posing, but of course, when you're that young, you don't really put it all together. It's only when you look back on it. This is why it was interesting writing the book and looking back on it, why, how all these things fitted together and how you ended up on that sort of trajectory, if you like, into something else. Um, yeah, I think... What was the material you played in the school group? You were in a school group and you talked about... Like, We've got a picture of them here. Was it a knot? Was it a knot? I can't remember. Yeah, that was a, that's a, um, a Paul McCartney, I call it the Paul McCartney Hofter bass, you know, um, which I, I borrowed off somebody at school who couldn't play it. <laughs> so, my, it's not my first guitar. My brother who's in the middle there, Will, who's playing a Watkins Rapier. I don't know if you remember those. Uh, they were about 22 quid, I think. Uh, and I borrowed that guitar because my brother initially, when I joined the band, made me a bass in the woodwork shop. I mean, how the hell do you make a guitar? But it was amazing at making things. And it looked a bit like a spade, so it was called the spade. And I, I've no idea what happened to it. It disappeared somewhere. So what kind of stuff did you do? Well, we were playing things like Nadine by Chuck Berry and Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, a few Beatles things. Uh, we pretty much got away with it. You know, this was uh, what a place called Routh Hall, which was 
uh, where we used to show a film on a Saturday night in this sort of rather primitive public school which I went to. And um, so we used to play on a Saturday night and uh, rap out a few tunes for the boys. They loved it, and we, we loved it. I mean, we were thought we were the bee's knees. You know. Well, rock music must have seemed, seemed even more exciting and rebellious at this school because you described the school as being the kind of place where you got expelled if you were caught reading Lady Chatterley's Lover. Is that right? Uh, actually, I was beaten mercilessly by my housemaster for reading Dr. No by Ian Fleming. Wow. God, you're kidding. Yeah. yeah, he said, you cannot read this sexual rubbish. And I went, oh, I thought, God, there's not much of that in there, is it? I'm just pretty tame. <laughs> Compared to day, today, it's pretty tame. But anyway, yeah, that was, they used to meet out punishments for very little in those days. Yeah, pretty severe. Um, so is it fair to say, just moving on, that, that um, after you left school, you had a long period of kind of drifting, didn't you, really? Um, I had a couple of years of drifting because I, I left school with very few qualifications, uh, I got art A-level, a decent decent level of art A-level but at art, but um, I didn't have much else apart from an ability to play the guitar a bit. Right. So in those days, you couldn't really get a job unless you had, you know, three A-levels at least. Yeah. You couldn't go to university, so that was out. And uh, so I drifted around for a couple of years and then uh, and somebody then gave me a job in a timber yard down in, um, in South East London. And that's where you met David Knopfler, is that right? And then no, well, living in a flat together? Or? No, well, I, I worked at this timber firm for about three years and then I decided I wanted to go back to university because I wanted to prove to myself that yeah. I wasn't a bloody idiot, you know, because having no qualifications at all. So I actually went to evening classes to get enough qualifications to get into London University, which I did at Goldsmiths College in South London. Little did I know that was an art college at the time. I did sociology there for three years and that's when I moved into the council flat because they were offering students these council flats for very little money, although it seemed a lot of the time, £9.50 a week for a four-bedroom flat. But each bedroom was about the size of this. Um, And I couldn't afford the rent, so David Knopfler appeared as my flatmate. And then, of course, David uh, brought Mark into the situation. So you talk about feeling connected to him, yeah, immediately through various yeah. records, and he liked, um, I think it was JJ Kale, yeah, yeah, Ray Kuda and Little Feet, yeah. And uh, d- describe your first impressions of meeting him. Well, he, he's how can I put it simply? I mean, I just as soon as I met him, I felt that I was going to know him for a long time. He has a he has a he had a very general sort of northern Geordie sort of warmth about him. He was very sort of understated. Uh, he was lying on the concrete floor in the flat um, when I came in early one morning after misbehaving all night. And um, I made him a cup of tea. And uh, of course, my first impressions of him was that he was lying there with a guitar over his chest. He'd fallen asleep on the concrete floor with his head in the sofa. And uh, I, know, I, thought, I looked at him and I thought, yeah, that's definitely Mark because he's had Dave, uh, Dave's features, you know. We had a cup of tea and started chatting, and I thought, hmm, I quite like you. <laughs> so we, we immediately struck up a friendship, and um, then we went and had breakfast down the, at the Star Star Cafe in Deptford High Street, and that sort of that's really cemented it. That breakfast, and we chatted away, talked about music endlessly, discovered we had the same thread, if you like, 
which was interesting. We were exactly the same age, so we'd kind of gone through ex- almost exactly the same mm-hmm. uh, clear view of what, how we wanted to fit into that world. So we, it was a shared, shared moment, really. And uh, he, he was he was very accomplished from early on. I mean, I can remember first hearing Mark Knopfler and thinking, "Good grief!" You know, <laughs> yeah, I like you know, that. <laughs> wasn't didn't seem to be a kind of gauche, you know, apprentice period. No. He could do it straight away. That must have struck you. Well, it did. I mean, he'd obviously played a, a lot before I I'd met him. And um, as I say in the book, he had this really extraordinary sort of picking style, which I hadn't heard before, which was a bit of rock, bit of jazz, bit of country, uh, a bit of everything, really. And he'd obviously worked it out for himself because I, I hadn't heard anybody else play like that. And when we actually, when I picked up the bass and started playing with him, it just, we just sort of locked in like that straight away. And it was quite interesting because that hadn't happened, with another, hadn't happened with another guitarist I can remember like that. Um... So there was no frustration of being how how are we going to play together. It was just automatic, and um, yeah, which was rather delightful actually. So clearly, you you thought right at the beginning, this is going to go multi platinum. <laughs> we're out of depth, you know. We're quizzy. <laughs> this is going to happen. Yeah. You, what were your ambitions at that point? Uh, to be able to afford breakfast, pretty much. Right. <laughs> um, I don't think you really, you know, you have your dreams, don't you, when you're younger, but when you get a bit older, and we were, I was, by this time, I was 26 years old when right. we met, and so was he. So dreams weren't kind of fantasies anymore. There was a sense of reality. It was like, ah, oh, okay, this sound, we sound good together here, and then David was played the guitar a bit, so he joined in, and then we needed a drummer. And then when Pick Withers comes on the scene, I suddenly realised that, Actually, this is quite special because Pick really was the only professional musician amongst us. He'd been earning a living, kind of, for years with different bands, as you know. And um, although we still had to pay for his petrol and his fag money when he came down, he, <laughs> he insisted on that uh, for a while. And, um, did, and then Mark, was, did Mark have an idea of what he wanted the group to sound like? Did he ever say, this is, this is the particular sound I'm looking for. No, he didn't have to say that because it, it was sounding it, the yeah, way yeah. it sounded. And the sound that we created very early on was the sound that you hear on the first album, but obviously much more, you know, organised and and, 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 and and slightly more controlled and all the rest of it. But that was, when we sat down together, that was the sound we made. It wasn't kind of like, oh, we, we should try and sound like this or sound like that. Because if you remember... The world was full of punk music then, yeah. and, you know, and you, men- you mentioned that Slaughter and the Dogs thing there. Which I, I, <laughs> that was strange, Bill. That, <laughs> that was a, a, a very interesting evening, to say the least. Yeah. Um, no, we're going to get onto that. Okay. But, but, you know, but, I think that was the sound of the band almost immediately. I mean, I felt like I'd played with Pick for years. Yeah. That was interesting, you know, and I just thought, okay, this this works. And I thought, this could be interesting. But yeah. when you when you read about your getting a record deal it, it's unbelievable how fast it happened because you'd had a, a record shop called Honky Tonk and, you, and you'd written to Charlie Gillett and yeah. Charlie Gillett had written back to you, you know. so you then sent him a demo tape Did you explain what happened there because it was extraordinary well when we did the, when we did, made the demo tape which was uh, done with some money that my granny had left us or left me and um, 
we Mark said to me, do you know Charlie Gillett, don't you? And I said, well, I don't really know Charlie Gillett. I mean, he helped me put some records in the record shop. But, um, and he said, well, can, do you think we can get the tape to him? And I said, well, we can try. So I, I rang Radio London and left a message for Charlie. And he rang back and said, um, you know, come round to my flat on Thursday, uh, my house in Clapham on Friday, on Thursday afternoon and, and drop the tape off. I was like, okay. <laughs> and this is a major D- DJ, by the way. I don't know whether you remember Charlie Gillett, but this was a major DJ on the radio on, on, on Sunday mornings, which everybody, all the record company people used to listen to. And uh, so we had tea and biscuits with Charlie, which is very, he was a lovely, a lovely man, and we got on very well with him and um, gave him the tape. He said, I won't listen to it now, I'll listen to it later. So then finally we walked out. And damn me if he didn't play it on the radio that Sunday, two days, three days later. Uh, and then the phone started ringing. Because you didn't actually hear it on the radio, did you? No, no. People got in touch said they they're playing you on the radio. Well, we we were Mark and I were moving furniture <laughs> that day on a Sunday because to earn a few quid for a friend, and uh, so we walked in the pub, you know, on the on the on the council estate where we used to go and have beers and stuff in the evenings. And everybody went, whoa, Charlie played the record, you know, on the, on the, on, on the radio today. We went, what? <laughs> really? And immediately there's a bidding war. I mean, there's three or four major labels, aren't there? Yes, it got a bit, it got a bit sort of mad. And, and thankfully, I, I mentioned the age thing because it's, it, it, if we'd been 18, we probably would have, yeah. you know, gone a bit a really bonkers. Good point. It would have been very difficult for us to deal with all that energy at that time. Yes, there was a bit of a bidding war, and some some of the bids were quite interesting, as I mentioned in the book, with you know, with with uh, Mr. Branson and stuff like that in the early days of Virgin. Yes, but, you were taken <laughs> out by a load of attractive girls. <laughs> That's right. Well, they all turned out to be working with Virgin because yeah. you know Richard did like to have attractive girls around him, as we know, and he still does. So I mean, that's nothing. Nothing's changed there. But and um, yeah, I'll, I'll just tell this little story because it's quite funny. Um, he invited us out after he'd give, he'd sent a, a sort of a rough estimate of his deal to our lawyer, which we had to, we had to get a lawyer to deal with all this stuff. And um, it wasn't a very good deal. Anyway, he said, come out for supper tonight, you know, on, this week. So we all went out to this Greek restaurant just off, um, uh, I think it's down in, in Notting Hill somewhere. And uh, we walked in, we sat in this private room and in between all of us, each of us, was, was a very, very pretty girl. Uh, and so Mark and I looked at each other across the table and went, mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> and then the owner of the restaurant walked in with a tray full of joints, right? So we started, so we, everybody got slightly stoned, if you can imagine. And uh, there was sort of hands under the table on people's legs and such like going on. I was thinking, oh my God, this is getting really kind of weird here. And Richard was saying, "Oh, we're having a great time, you know. Come and come and sign with us. You're going to have a just, really good. Just put your name with everything's going to be wonderful." And Michael I looked across at the table as you threw and went, "Uh huh." So, <laughs> so I think being a bit older, we could handle that kind of stuff. So you signed to phonogram instead. Yeah, you, didn't he say afterwards? Didn't lay a hand on didn't, you. Didn't, didn't Richard Bradson say afterwards that was the night I lost a billion dollars or something? <laughs> well, there was an article in, the, in I, think, yeah. I don't know it was the Sun or the Mirror or something, and, I, and somebody sent it to me, and I thought, oh my god, fancy admitting that? Yeah. Because yeah, the day I the day I gave away a billion dollars, yeah, or a billion pounds or something, because that would have been basically what the record company would have probably made. A bit more than us, I have to say. Yeah, right. Yeah. 
But your your ascent was so rapid. The, the first gig you played, I think, was at a, a punk festival. Um, yeah. And the second was at the uh, at the bandstand and, and Clapham Common to two thousand people. Is that right? So yes, your second can, gig. As you can see, how organised we are <laughs> as far as facing the audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that was the first gig was in front of probably twenty or thirty. Uh, inebriated members of the Crossfields Estate where we lived, between the railway line and our flat, and uh, with a big wind blowing. And the next one was in front of two thousand people on Clapham Common. I was completely, completely freaked out by that the sight of all those people. I mean, we were just hamming it along, really. Well, you can see there's one at the bottom here. I mean, yeah, God, I don't know. I don't know how we got away with it actually, but we did. And and Charlie was. Charlie was quite keen to sign the band, but he could see there was an awful lot of... Because um, he had a record label called yeah. Oval, Oval Records. Oval, right. yeah. Yeah, you remember that, yeah. And they used to sign people, but I think he realised the energy that was coming at us was much more than he could handle, really. But there were quite a few people in the British record business at the time who thought, this is going to go... This is going to go be, be huge. And then the reason they thought that there is they thought America will love this. Yeah. And this was a time when... Lots of the bands being signed by British record companies, America didn't love. I mean, were you aware of this at the time? Um, not really, to be honest. If I'm, I mean, getting a deal when there was a lot of punk music around was was quite interesting. Uh, but there were bands like us just playing, you know, normal rock and roll music, you know, pub bands and such like, which was great. But um, you know, this uh, signing with Phonogram, I think put us into a position where we felt confident that they were going to take care of us. They said, if you sell 5,000 copies of the first album, we'll be very happy. <laughs> very happy. <laughs> and then we got a phone call from Holland. They got a phone call from Holland saying we've sold 25,000 copies. In Holland? Yeah, just in Holland. In Holland, in Holland. <laughs> I was like, what? I know. Anyway, and then, and then America picked up on it. And, yeah. And it's very rare, actually... I can only say this from in, in retrospect, it's very rare for America to pick up on something like that so quickly. Mm. And most Americans thought we were an American band. Yeah, yeah. So when we were to do interviews, they said, oh, gee, yeah. we thought you were American. Yeah. He went, no, we're from southeast London, actually. Yeah. There's a lovely story about Ed Bicknell, the guy who comes on to marry you. Uh, to marry you. To marry you. To marry you. He did ask, and I turned him down, <laughs> <That's> actually. <right>. <laughs> <laughs> To manage you, and you, and obviously, took made a huge difference to the band, you know. But yeah. tell us the story about when you first met him and went to, went to had that meeting with him. Oh my God! Well, he he wanted to impress us. He was working for Nem's agency at that particular point, which yeah. was, as probably you might remember, was was a little dodgy. But uh, he was he was a booking agent for them, and he was booking people like Talking Heads, which is the reason why we went on the Talking Heads tour. Mark and I went for a meeting with him. And um, because he'd, he'd already been to Dingwalls to see us. And the first thing he did when he walked into Dingwalls was knock over Mark's red strat in the dressing room. Well, that was a really good start, you know. So they got, anyway, he went to, well, Mark and I went to see him at the agency and he was had this, behind this big mahogany desk and all, oh, yeah, big, unimportant sort of thing. So we sat there thinking, oh, okay, this is rather nice, nice office and all this stuff. And he said, he said, we can write, let's chat, let's chat, let's chat. You know, I've told them, I've told them not to, 
let any phone calls through at all because we need to get serious about this. I want to, I want to, I want to manage this band and I want you know, to do this tour with Talking Heads and all this bit. The phone starts ringing, right? I've told you, I don't, I don't care if it's Brian Ferry, put it, you know, put the phone <laughs> And Mark and I go, okay, right then. And then a bit more chat. It's kind of a movie. Isn't it? it is, ridiculous. <laughs> and the phone rings three minutes later. I've to- I don't want to be disturbed. This is- I'm in a very important meeting. I don't care, I'll call him back later. This went on for about half an hour. And in there we said, uh, you know, can you just tell them to stop phoning through? Anyway, the story was basically he said, just keep phoning me to make it look like him. It was the reception. I'm important. Was saying, yeah. That old trick. But, anyway. but it, it, it's very rare. In your book, you actually say it's kind of, he, you know, he managed dire straits all the way through. Yeah. And, uh, and he was immensely, hugely valuable. You know, because normally yeah. people say, well, the manager, you know, we, we, did, we succeeded despite the manager. It tends to say you you don't say that at all. You really give him his due. Well, I think he deserves the due. I mean, he he grew with us. That's the fact. And he, his mentor was was uh, Peter Grant from Led Zeppelin, of course. You know, so he he saw the way Peter Grant operated, and of course, when the band started getting successful, it gave him more credibility, more power, and he enjoyed that. He enjoyed going to the record company and saying. You're not going to get another record unless you increase the royalty rate and walk out. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know, and, you know, he used, he used that power very well. But he was a very, very good manager. And, you know, of course, there's times when you get, you know, everything gets a bit fractured and all the rest of it. You know, disagree about certain things. But that's normal. But overall, I stressed in the book that he was very good for the band. And we were very good for him. I mean, he, you know, he got a lot of credibility from managing Dire Straits. And he did a damn good, damn good job of it. I couldn't. We couldn't resist including this. This is we're looking at a bill from the Hope and Anchor for December in whatever year this is, and uh, mm-hmm. meal ticket have actually sold out, but Dire Straits, who spelled with the G H T, have not sold Still out. Got a few so. of their one pound tickets to be taken up. Yeah, uh, 
competing with Deke Leonard's and the X-ray Specs. What are your memories of, of the, the kind of the, the pub circuit in London at that time? Well, I've got to tell you, I still get emails from people who spell the name like that. Really? Unbelievable, after all these years. It's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> it really exactly. well, yeah. Anyway, but you have to forgive them for that because we were quite new to the scene. Well, I just remember the Hope and Anchor. You, you must remember playing. Yeah, going yeah, down yeah. I've never played the Hope. Oh, you haven't? Okay, yeah. well, you, you might one day. But anyway, yeah. so, um, yes, well, it's it's about, let's be generous, it's about another half size bigger than this. Yes, too. And if you can imagine 120 people in there, no air conditioning, no windows, everybody smoking. Yes, right? that's right. Everybody yeah. smoking. Eating and chips. a stage which is <laughs> yeah. probably... Lower, a bit lower than this and um, yeah it was pretty intense we had no roadies in those days so we used to have to load everything in through the, the yes. beer chute yes it did and for some reason it was Mark and me that was loading the bloody stuff in and out I don't know where Pick and David were but they were always conveniently not around and of course you try lifting a bass bin out of a beer chute after you've been playing in front of 120 people absolutely drenched in sweat uh, for about 20 quid yeah. and a pint. But it very quickly grew and you you, you played a huge amount of gigs, didn't you? I mean, you were, I mean how, yeah. how busy were you at your busiest? Oh, well... There's one bit where you talk about playing 246 shows in one year, I think, in 23 different com- countries. Would that be right? I yeah. think, well, the the... the the Brothers in Arms tour, I think, was 248 shows uh, in, I don't know how many countries it yeah. was. But the On Every Street tour was about the same number of shows, slightly more, but to three times as many people, seven million people. No, seven and a half million people in a year and a half. Absolutely astonishing. Mad. I mean, when you say to it's bands now, when you say to bands now, you're going on tour, they say, yeah, we're doing 30 dates. Yes. And they're going... Yeah. Yes. Well, you're just warming up, then, are you? you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And when you come off a tour like that, is it, is it that kind of cliche where at eight o'clock at night you just feel, you know, that you're meant to be doing a sound check and you're, the adrenaline just kicks in? I mean, is it... Yeah, well, you feel a bit weird, actually. Yeah. You feel weird because suddenly all that structure around you is gone and you've exchanged one family, this big touring family, which is like a, a, an army on manoeuvres, and you go back home and... There's your wife or girlfriend and a child or something you haven't seen for probably six months or something, and and you you can't order a taxi, you can't get a plane ticket, you don't you don't know how to book a restaurant, you don't know how to do anything, yeah, you don't even know how to carry your own bag, which is pathetic really, but because when you're in that sort of situation, you've got everyone looking after you, yeah, yeah, and it's very it's very very spoiling, but it's kind of necessary if you're playing two hundred and forty eight shows. You don't want to be carrying your own bag yeah. and washing your own clothes and getting your own cab. You've got to have somebody doing it for you. You can't do it. But do you find you're kind of stranded between the two lives? They, they, I've talked to loads of musicians yeah. who say, yeah. when I'm on tour, I want to be at home. When I'm at home, I want to be on tour. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure I think like that. I, see, I saw it as two very separate things, which, of course, inevitably leads to problems. Um, but um, I do make, I do go into that in the book because it is very difficult to keep relationships going, and I think anybody who's in a successful rock and roll band finds that because you, you just you, your sort of your sense of proportions and perspective gets sort of shattered by this 
you know, walking on stage every night and getting that adrenaline rush. Yes. And you it come home and that adrenaline rush isn't there anymore. So you know, abnormal. I mean, going out for a meal isn't exactly the same as standing yeah. on stage in front of 30,000 people. Really. <laughs> no, there's a bit at the end of Dial Stretch, we're jumping forward here, but where you talk about having to learn to be an adult all over again because you just... That's you pathetic, isn't on, it, really? You haven't done any washing up. You no. You can't remember no. how to make a bed or whatever, you know. Oh, it's uh, darling, I've forgotten how to wash up. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's just talk about some of the people that, you you know, your success brought you into contact with. But, you know, that, that, the, the, the second album, is it the second album? Communicate is made with the legendary Jerry Wexler, The Atlantic. Um, yeah. You know, so you've made the first record kind of pretty much quite quickly, haven't you? You're quite a modest budget. And then suddenly, second record, you're, where are you? The Bahamas or whatever. And, uh, you know, legendary producer. And they're flying and, uh, lobsters and steaks in from the mainland every day. Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely well, unbelievable. How did that well, feel, just that amount of success? Well, that, found, that, that felt very weird because we were still living in the council flat and Jerry Wexler was knocked in a slumber. I can tell you, not yeah. being the senior vice president of Warner Brothers, he wasn't going to slum it. So he, he hired this house, which was just absurd. It was owned by some uh, widow of an oil tycoon, you know, with columns and swimming pools and uh, ballet studios and yeah, yeah. with grand pianos and big fluffy white carpets and blue sea and all of this. It's like, my God, I mean, you can see it here, look. It was that lovely tall bloke on the left-hand side. That was, <laughs> uh, that's, that's, you know, the house is where I'm sitting here now. I mean, that was the view. Can you imagine coming into that and then, go, and then going to work, you know? Um, but Jerry was, Jerry was a very safe pair of hands, but he was very well aware of how much the first album was being received in America and going down. Because when we were there, I think the album was really starting to motor in the States. So he had this idea that he, he thought, right, I'm going to make a record that's the same, the same as that first record. So that was his intention to try and keep that sound together. So there's a similarity in A, approach, and B, in the sound of it. Despite the fact that, despite the fact that the equipment that we were supposed to fly in from Miami to use on the album never turned up. But anyway, that's another story. Um, you have to buy the book to learn about all this stuff. <laughs> and um, Jerry was, yes, he, he flew in his food, all the food for us from, from New York, from bakery, from his bakery and from the, from the butchers. And he and I used to go down to the airport and pick up these big, big aluminium cases of food. <laughs> Lobster. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, actually, the lobsters came from the island. Oh, well, that's all right. And that was the one thing that and did come from the Every day you're getting calls saying that the, the, the first album is, is just... Yeah, it's know, started to motor, yeah. So it was all good news. And, um, yeah, so he was great to work with, I have to say. But Barry Beckett, his engineer, you, I've got to give a lot of yeah. credit to Barry because yeah. he, he, he was the Muscle Shoals, part of the, um, the yeah. Swampers in, in Muscle Shoals. Yeah, you know, the, the, the rhythm section that played on Aretha's albums and yeah. all the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. He was a, a fabulous guy to work with. But you went from kind of penury to the, to the kind of the first-class lounge pretty quickly, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, and and there's a, you basically have to get used to a lot of things that you're not used to. I mean, the landscape is changing very quickly that you're in. So you have to learn how to deal with it. It's coming at you really thick and fast. 
Um, so it helped being a bit older as well, I, th- I think, you know. Mm. And, uh, uh, I mean, you, you, when you get the confidence of an, an album hitting America, that has a kind of a fairly significant effect on you. Mm. And we didn't really want to do Communicate quite so quickly because it has just started, it was taking off in America and it was just starting to really take off in Europe. So we didn't really need another album out, to be frank. We we needed to keep that first album going and go touring, but Warner Brothers put huge amounts of pressure on us and Ed was having real difficulty dealing with it, Ed Bicknell. So he had to sort of, he had to say, I can't, I can't deal with the Warner Brothers. They just, they're just going to go ahead with this thing anyway. Mm. And that's what happened. So moving forward, the yeah. two members of the of the original group yeah. left. Uh-huh. I mean, not together or anything. But uh, David Knopfler, obviously Mark's brother, and yeah. Pick with us, the drummer. Pick. He just he just didn't want to do it anymore. He wanted to be in Weather Report, doesn't he? <laughs> Isn't that, is that what he says in the book? Yes. Well, that that was partly what he said, but I think he was just getting... He was finding it physically very difficult right. as a drummer to play all those shows. And um, I, I can see that very clearly uh, now. At the time, I thought he was handling it pretty well, but... I think he just needed to back off from it. He he kind of had enough, I think. Right. And um, you know, you can sense when somebody's beginning to build up to a, a problem. And uh, he made the album. He made Love of a Gold with us, and then uh, we sat and had lunch with him, Mark and I, one day. And he and he, we were wondering why did he? Pick doesn't usually ask to have a meeting with Mark and I. You know, it just doesn't usually happen, especially when we're paying for lunch. But anyway. Um, uh, he just suddenly announced, you know, I, I, I'm going to leave the band. It was like, oh, right, we've just made the record pick and we're going to go on tour, the tour's booked. You're not going to do the tour with us. I mean, you've got the record and, you know. And he said, no, I'm, I, I can't fit, I don't want to, I, I've had enough, I can't do it anymore. Mm. What were the circumstances of David leaving then? Well, I think, you know, I think we can all recognise situations where brothers working in a very intense relationship like that. They're very different kinds of people, David yeah. and Mark. I mean, I was, the thing is, I was friends with both of them, so it was very tricky for me, I have to say. Uh, but um, that was building up as well. I mean, David was finding it... Finding, he was, David was finding success quite difficult to deal with. Um, and I suppose some people do, and he did. Um, Mark and I really enjoyed it. I mean, we enjoyed the fact that we were successful. David was, David was saying... Why did he find it difficult? I don't know. He was saying things like, I'm not sure it was meant to be like this. And it was like, well, what's this meant to be like? You know, third on the bill to Talking Heads or something with Slaughter of the Dogs. Mm. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I'd quite like to move on from that, if you don't mind. But I, I, the tensions were building up, you know, sort of relationship tensions were building up. And you just had to appreciate the fact that the band was probably going to be move forward better without him. Were you the person who had to tell him? I didn't tell him. I asked him the question. <clears throat> and I think I've got this right because the Where, where does... do you see yourself some five yeah, years five time? time. <laughs> <laughs> it's your three monthly assessment. Yeah. <laughs> well it was difficult. I mean you know the, the tension was in the studio. Jimmy Ivine was running around saying for Christ's sake can we get this effing record 
going here. David was being awkward and not coming in on time and doing that anyway. He was just creating problems. And Jim was like, oh, for Christ's sake, get David in here, get this bloody record done and all the rest of it. So I said, I'm going to go and talk to him. So I talked to him and I said, you, you, you either come back to the studio and get on with it and do it and, and shake hands or something or whatever, or go home. He said, I'm going home. Uh-huh. Like, oh, Christ, OK, you're going home. That was it. So I just want to t- talk about the, these two really key records, uh, <laughs> making movies, okay. um, which I seem to remember as a huge kind of breakthrough video album. You know, the, you, you oh. skate away. And they, they, you know, I went to the States at the time and MTV had launched and suddenly there was re- these really high production values videos, which I'm not sure even featured Dire Straits at all. Is that right? <laughs> You're talking about the Lester Bookbinder. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. I think that was a bit of an experiment. Right. Because he was, a, he was basically a stills photographer. And we, loved, we really loved his work. And I think it was a bit of an experiment to see what he would do with these songs. And they were kind of, they kind of, they kind of stood the test of time. They're quite peculiar in a way. Um, but, you know, when you have a stills photographer putting a lot of stills together to, in effect with a bit of movement in between, it's kind of weird. But we, we actually were, I think we were in it, a little bit. Okay. It wasn't just all pretty girls and pretty boys. It right. Was, you know. Right. And, and, and obviously Brothers in Arms is, uh, like it or not, it's the record that people always say, well, that was the breakthrough CD. That was the record that people It was people almost used. a demo CD, wasn't it? I can remember when we launched Q Magazine, people would ring up and say, you've got to hear Brothers in Arms on, us, on CD, on a big player. Yeah, yeah. And so you were really in the right place at the right time twice there, weren't you? You were with MTV taking off and, and with the CD boom. Well, that's just coincidence, to be honest. I mean, the fact of the matter is that that album was recorded on some of the very, very first digital machines, uh, the Sony machines. I can't remember the names of them. It's too complicated for me. But these things were shipped to Air Studios in Montserrat. And I remember seeing them come up the track, being held on by three or four local blokes. They weren't even strapped down, these machines, in the back of a ute, and bouncing up the track. And they're thinking, that's not going to do those machines much good. Mm. And uh, anyway, they worked for a bit, and then there was a problem with some tape. But so... Brothers and Arms was recorded digitally, which was the first time it happened on a on a on a record, uh, I think. And then CD came out, and Philips, which owned our record company, was developing the CD. So a lot of coincidences. And MTV was coming over to Europe. Mark wrote this song, "Money for Nothing," you know, which was a, a view of MTV in New York when he was trying to buy a fridge. And um, it's true, he was trying to buy a fridge. Uh, it's amazing you think Mark in a shop trying to buy a fridge. Yes, isn't it? it is. Yeah. I'm going to try and visualise These things happen. Yeah. Um, and uh, so all those things came together, which created a sort of a, a storm, really. And you, But you've got to remember the band up to that point had had four pretty successful records. This is it. Yeah. And had done a lot of touring. So it was pretty well known. And we took a long time to prepare this record. We spent a long time... In a, in a small room, you know, just sitting around working out bits and pieces. And then we went to uh, Phil Manzanera's studio for a bit and got it a bit more organised there. So by the time we hit Montserrat, we had a pretty good idea about what it was going to sound like, you know. 
And then clearly, you know, Live Aid, a bit of a peak moment for you. Which I've forgotten that you were originally invited by Bob Gelf, unless he said this to everybody, to be the headliner. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. there was his technique, but you were, which you couldn't do because you were playing Wembley Arena. The same yeah, night. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, he, uh, yes, he wanted us to headline it uh, because, in fact, actually at that point, I don't think Queen were thinking about doing anything, you know, because uh, having seen the movie now, I'm reminded of the state that the thing was in. They hadn't worked for a while together. Uh, for all sorts of reasons. And the Straits at that particular time were probably the, the the chosen one that Bob wanted to headline it. And he used some fairly fruity language to try and get us involved, to say the least. He didn't hold back, Bob. Um, and we said, we just can't do it. We can't headline it. You'll have to get somebody else to do it. We can, we can play in the afternoon. He was having real difficulty getting other people to commit to his project at that particular moment. Um, there was, you know, because he was he was really pushing this idea of this Ethiopian crisis and all the rest of it. Everybody knew about it, but nobody was going to commit to this mm. global gig that he wanted to create until they had a decent band. Because they were so, we'll wait and see who else is on it. But as soon as the Straits signed up, he said he got people saying yes, I'll, I'll we'll get involved. And then of course Queen got together and did that extraordinary performance. Absolutely extraordinary performers. And you were playing Wembley Arena yeah. at the same time. Uh, uh, yeah, Arena. That yeah. night, yeah. We went across the, to the arena and played that night. There was, I think we had about 10 or 12 shows that were already sold out. So we, we, yeah. we, we wanted to honour that previous commitment. And it worked out fine, although it was quite funny. When we, when we finished our gig at the at Live Aid... And then walked across the car park, literally to go back to the arena because it's just over the way. Well, it seemed like a real anti-climax. <laughs> well, was, well, the security it's a tiny guy, little audience. I know the security guy at the Wembley Arena didn't know who we were, so he wouldn't let us in. <laughs> so there was, there's a certain irony there. Yeah. So, so Dire Straits, the group it was in '95 that sort of dissolved. Was that right? But it, it didn't sort of dissolve. It just decided not to decided play. Not to, just, yeah. just started not to play yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, simple, you know. But but you've done various things since. And you've done tours on your own, and you've yeah, yeah. you bought a pub, which you occasionally put on. I bought shows. a pub. Yeah, yeah. And I've done. Uh, I've got my eighth solo album coming out in January. So excellent. So I've done. I've been quite busy doing various things. Yes, that's the pub, um, which uh, I'm pleased to say is is a, is a great pleasure most of the time. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that's probably Macintosh in the middle. You know, Robbie? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, in McCarthy's band. Oh, he's in the, the Pretenders, wasn't he? That's yeah. Right, yeah. Great player. Fabulous yeah. player. We had a lot of fun doing that. And uh, you were, um, well, you, you, you'd obviously see Mark Knopfler regularly. And uh, but there's the two of you uh, posing outside. Where are you there to, to commemorate uh, sites in the, in the history well, of the man? That's, that's where we lived. Right. This council flat down in Deptford. And um, somebody knocked on the door to try and... So we could go and have a look inside. And the lady, the lady who lives there refused to open the door. <laughs> <laughs> We're all standing outside with photographers and all the rest of it. And, uh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's nice, that. I mean, it's a nice thing to do. That And that where that... Um, the gig in the, on the top there, that's the railway line at the back there. And our flat is pretty much where you guys are sitting. Yeah. And there's those two little guys at the front and everybody says, oh, my God, that was a big audience. Well, there's more people sitting over here, right. I, have to, oh, yeah. I have to tell you. But that was, I think Squeeze played on that as well because that's their PA system, the old Wem columns there that 
Do you remember those? Things? Oh yes, of course. And um, yes, you described a cable coming out of one of the flats. I think was it was all. Uh, well, the cable came out of our flat because yes. I'd done something interesting to the electricity meter. <laughs> <laughs> so the inevitable question is: uh, We've got a picture of you and Martin Offler there. Is Will Dire Straits ever ride again? Oh God! I wish you hadn't asked me that. No, no, I don't think so. I'd be very surprised. Everything things have moved on since then. Would you do that if it, if it was if it was if it was it's, a, it's an interesting question. I don't know what it would feel like. I mean, I think it would be great in some ways, but in other ways, you know, trying to relive something. I mean, I don't know. Um, I mean, he's very happy doing what he's doing, and I'm very happy doing what I'm doing, and, and we've remained friends, which to me is kind of more important than actually yeah. trying to get something else back together again. It's a, it's an inevitable question everybody asks because I think it's probably not going to happen. Probably. <laughs> they never say never never right. say never and there's the book my life in dire straits yeah. ladies and gentlemen john ilsley this podcast was Thank brought you to you much. by the word deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.